Welcome to DT Madness, Chronicles from the Third Life, Episode 9, May 28th, 2022. So glad you could make it. One of my classes that I've been teaching for almost 20 years now, and one of my favorites to teach is AP Psychology. And towards the end of the course, we talk about a an experiment, a study done by a psychologist named Solomon Ash. And he was doing some studies on conformity. And the way he had it set up is he had someone come in um, that had to sit around a table with others who were s- similar situations, college-aged, educated, um, all that kind of stuff, and would sit around a table and they would have to judge lines, be given the, the, the first standard line, and then you had three or two or three other choices and you had to see you had to say which of the other one was the same length as the standard line. And there it's obvious. I mean, it's really very simple task, one that any small kid could do. And yet what Solomon Ash found is that of these college-aged, educated humans, that a third of them were willing to say that the the line that was wrong, obviously wrong, was the correct answer because everyone else did. If everyone else uh, said, you know, for example, that, that it was line B, even though that was clearly wrong, then our person would also go with line B a third of the time on a task as simple as that and so it's easy as we see from ash's studies and many others that it's it's you know it's really easy to get caught up in the norms and those are necessary to a certain degree um there's no doubt about that we need societal norms and um they help us operate you know but one of the things that we can get from ash's studies is that even when one other person went against the crowd, it loosened the grip of conformity. And so when one other person went with the correct line, then our our person, the one being studied, was able to identify the truth without fear of being shamed or labeled or mocked. We're uh, approaching graduation for my oldest boy and the the class of 22. And for them, if you just think about these, I mean, for all of us, for all of us, for our kids, especially, I mean, what a time these past few years, several years have been heavy, heavy times. I'll say this, and I tried to say this to these kids at the end of the school year and through the year, they are so resilient. The, the things that they've been through, the, the, through the lockdowns and, and pandemics and you know, sickness and fear and division and hatred and you add on top of that all of these, you know, mass violence and just dis- just despicable, despicable things like all the things that they've had to deal with, they are resilient and, and inspirational. 
I told many of them in class and as I signed their yearbooks this year, we need them. We need them to lead. And I don't mean in the future. We need them to lead now. And I told them I would follow them. I, I can honestly say that I would feel a lot better following them than most of the leaders that we have today. But this episode is is more so about teaching and living and reconsidering. Like, what are we doing? I, I tried to write down thoughts through the week for this for this podcast. For I do that every week, and you know, after Evaldi, it, it was just the only thing I could write down was just WTF. You know, what are we doing? Um. So I've been considering that systemic problem that we have, or at least a part of it. The word consider has its root, its etymology, in in staring at the night sky, as if you were examining, you know, deeply contemplating, trying to understand through consistent and thorough thought and reflection. And so that's the title of this episode, Staring at the Night Sky. I'm reading Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I'm almost through with it. I don't know, probably this is a dozen times I've been through it. It's interesting to go back and see the things that I had underlined before and the new things that I mark and how, you know, as you experience different things as you live life and you come back to a text that you've read many times, how it speaks to you differently, how you can see how it has shaped you. But the subtitle of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which Persig admits early on, isn't really about Zen or motorcycle maintenance. But it's an inquiry into values, and that's something that I've been thinking about. What are our, what are our values? Do we, do we have them? I've thought about this from not necessarily an individual perspective, but like like a drone's eye view. If if we were to be able to fly a drone up above us, you know, and see our society move, perhaps in one of those uh, time-lapse videos, what would it show us about who we are and, and what we do? Because it sure seems to me that we have lost a sense of meaning, a, a, a sense of meaningfulness, societally, I mean. And perhaps that filters down to the individual. Maybe that emptiness filters down. But but I have no doubt that with enough individuals rediscovering meaning, reconsidering, staring at the sky, staring at the stars, that if we could rediscover that meaning and worth and value, that it would filter up and ripple out. Let me try to make this a little bit more concrete because I can't obviously deal with all of the values and all of the societal ills and um, dealing with my own values and ills would be more than I could bear. So trying to get to societal level. So, so anyway, to, to make it more concrete, I'll, I'll just talk about teaching, you know, and living. I've talked about this before. I may talk about it through the summer as I prepare uh, for August. I know a lot of, People uh, talk about how teachers don't have to work during the summer. True. We also don't get paid during the summer. Uh, um, But I'm not one of those that's constantly 
proclaiming the fact that I'm off. I'm not off. I'll be grading AP government exams here coming up pretty soon. And I'm already in the process of planning for my classes in the fall. Anyway, my principles for how I'm trying to redesign or, or perhaps just enhance the classes that I teach, um, reflecting on my craft and how to make it better. But those four principles are agency, creativity, cooperation, and metacognition. And I want to talk about those four, just um, some of them briefly, perhaps some of them a little less briefly. But at the end, I want to add in to something that I've been thinking about, and that is my ideas about assessment or evaluation and what I see my role as, uh, what my role in it all is. So I've been thinking about these concepts and how to turn them into practices in the classroom, but also this week in particular, I've been thinking about how they apply to the practice of living, how they apply to me and to my family and to my community. So anyway, let's take them one at a time. The first one is agency. And for each of these, I, I, I kind of start off what I mean by that in the classroom. And, and just real briefly, I, I want the kids to have some control over what content they study, how they go about learning it, how they go about demonstrating that they learn it. Um, you know, uh, Albert Bandura has a concept called self-efficacy, which is, you know, your belief in your ability to do something. And that, that's something that we have to work on with, with many of our students. They don't really possess that belief for various reasons, but I want to go beyond that to their belief and their ability to do it, to them actually doing it, to having a stake, to displaying agency. Some of them for sure will need to be guided into that agency, which may sound uh, perhaps like a paradox or a contradiction, but I'll come back to that um, at the end. Agency in life and how I've been thinking about it in living this week. Look, I, I don't. Okay, after after the, the events in Texas this week uh, and so much despair, of course, it wrecked me, wrecked us all. Um, but I saw some some posts i heard some people talking about well you know jesus can just come back now i know this isn't my my home and and i have to admit that my my thinking is shaped here by nt wright i've read all of his books except for one because i don't know greek um i don't really mean to get into the theology of rapture and what i think about all that and 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 all that kind of stuff but i, I don't I don't think it's, I, I think it's a cop out. I don't, I don't mean that as negatively as it sounds. I understand the, the desire to get out of this misery. You know, I, I get it. I get the allure of this is just my temporary home and I can't wait for it to be over. I, I, I get it. I, I mean, I don't, I'm mad about it. Um, it's just not complete. I think because it, it isn't that our faith and politics should be separated, quite quite the contrary, in my view, again, shaped by right. But, but our politics have shaped who we see Jesus as, rather than Jesus the Christ shaping our politics. Anyway, I'll just light that fuse and walk away, come back for those fireworks maybe later. But, but 
maybe not quite, you know, look, Jesus is Lord is something that the early church would say. And in saying that, they were saying that Caesar isn't. And that's provocative. It's not that Jesus is Lord and so we can just let this earth be this earth. No, Caesar isn't. That's a direct confrontation with the powers of this earth that we are uh, um, fueled by a new a new source, a new power. Caesar isn't. The American government isn't. And so our view of of the Christ, who the Christ is, not just our view, but that should shape our politics. I, I, I'll wrap this up. Look, it, my friend Rachel, we used to sing this song. Um, it's the Lord's Prayer, essentially, when we were at Broad River. And it was, I'm not really a worship music kind of guy. I don't, it's not my thing. It's not like I'm hymns or whatever. Uh, it's just not my kind of uh, music, you know. But um, but one of the songs was was the Lord's Prayer. And, it, and, and the way that we would sing it is is towards the end would kind of repeat the phrase, let heaven come. Because that's it, on earth as it is in heaven. So let heaven come, that's the idea. We should have agency here, not not resignation. These things are awful and terrible and horrible and disgusting. And so let's get to work. Let's get to work. Being light, being comfort. Making change, seeking justice, letting it roll. Anyway, one of the things that I want to practice, and this will be a new sponsor here for the podcast. I can see this one's going to go long, guys. Sorry. Um, But one of the new sponsors and one of the things that we're going to do in my family is we've created the Wall of Belief. Isaac came up with the phrase, the W-O-B. And so... Any single entrance will be a wob wobble, uh, the wall of belief, W-O-B. And so the idea is, you know what? My family, my kids, my my wife, we're good with <laughs> – what a crazy thing I'm about to say. I was going to say we're good with humility. That's funny. But we do practice that. That's something that we practice, and I think sometimes – we forget, I know I do, and I think my kids do forget their value. They forget that they are valuable in themselves, that they have agency. And so one of the ideas about the wall of belief is to come up with a, a mantra of sorts. For me, one of them is is the fish lyric that I've talked about. Everything's right, so just hold tight. It's taken care of. Good wins in the end. You know, as I was at the river just now, my Latino friends were down there and this little baby, you know, just barely able to stand up, barely able to make sounds, stands there. You know, I give a little wave and, you know, she waves back. I say hello. And as I'm about five or six steps past, she says hello. The family resting and relaxing, they all get a good laugh out of it. Joy. It's still here. But but the wall of belief is, is you know, everything's right or yes, whatever it is. And, and, and it could be, you know, some of ours may not be um, rated PG-13. I'm not sure I'll be able to share them. 
on the podcast, I'm okay with my kids telling themselves that they have worth, that they have value, reminding themselves that they are a part of this, you know, that they get to contribute a verse in this powerful play, as Whitman would say. And so I'll, I'll share with you, we haven't created it yet, but we've, I've challenged the kids to, to begin to think of those things, to, rem, to, to say to themselves, to look at themselves in the mirror in the morning, to begin to you know, chip away at some of this self-doubt and remember our agency. Agency's tricky, you know, like me deciding that I'm going to be the person that charts my own course, that I'm going to be the captain of this ship and that I I can and I, you know, everything's right. So just, that's tricky because of our connections to each other. I mean, the very morning that I was feeling like I had made a step, you know, that, that I had, had gained some perspective and that I was going to defeat my self-doubt and my anxiety for today. By by this wall of belief, I did. One of my kids was feeling sick, was feeling unwell, and that connection to others makes it really tricky for us to believe in ourselves. And how do I, how do I chart my own course while considering others, while while traveling through the valleys with them? How do I maintain my own, you know, poise and my own positivity, my own faith, my own hope? While at the same time, you know, going through the depths with the people that I love. Ah, humanity. What a marvel. The second one is creativity. You know, the teaching part, that's that's pretty straightforward. I, I, I don't want to just deal with whatever, multiple choice tests or lecture. I mean, I like to tell stories. I can do direct instruction. I'm pretty good at it. I like to get laughs. I think that's all an important part of it, but I want them to, to put some stuff. I want them to draw if they can, whatever, artistic, you know, musical, whether they are uh, performers or whether they aren't, somehow or another to get them to be creative because I think so much of that creative energy has been stifled. That little girl down at the river just now had such an inquisitive look. She's like, who is this guy? You know, what is this whole big world all about? And we know that that's how kids are. Even kids that come from difficult situations and for the most part still have that spark of trying to understand what this whole thing is about. Kids entering into elementary school have all the questions in the world, but year after year after year with grades and testing and the structure that we've that we've yet to reform for, for decades and decades, it just pounds that creative energy out of them it stifles it and the and the the, the, the few ways that we do encourage it uh, Persig talks about um, his kid trying to climb the mountain with him and that he's 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 messed up by being at YMCA camp and the YMCA camp in this book like tried to get them to overcome their weakness and really climb the mountain for themselves and and what Persig calls it is ego climbing and he says the ego climbing always ends in disaster when you're trying to do it for yourself. That's never an end when we're when we're just asking kids to to be creative, to to show or display their learning just so that they can prove that they did something rather than you know I'll come back to that too, I guess, but there's never an end. So what if we harness that creativity? And not just in the classroom, but what if we allowed that type of 
individual, um, you know, exploration, that, that idea that, that, yeah, there's a map and there are edges, but what if we went beyond the edges, as Tolkien would say? I think that we could have some trailblazing kids. I think that they could help us bust out of some of these molds that we could escape some of these ruts that we find ourselves in societally because they would be allowed to figure new things out in ways that we, ah, we, we're just holding them back. I think that would create ripples that would, you know, make their way out through time and space. So anyway, that's something that we're going to practice, you know, in, in our own family getting our hands dirty, planting things and, and reaping things and building things and discovering new things and singing together and creating both in, in writing and, and thinking, whatever it is, like trying new things, cooking, whatever it is, like just as a practice so that we can be prepared mentally to break out of these mm, societal molds. The third one is cooperation. And, you know, in the classroom, this is a tool for combining those first two agency and creativity by putting the kids together. Uh, I, I do this mainly with an idea just called um, a common practice of teachers called the jigsaw method, where one student has to learn the stuff and then they have to teach the other groups, whatever. It's, it's pretty easy to set up. You have to combat social loafing. I mean, no doubt there are going to be kids who don't put forth as much effort. And so there are ways to try to, you know, hold people accountable, but there's also social facilitation. Kids often do perform better in the presence of others. I say cooperation and not competition because I've seen the pitfalls. I'm not uh, anti-competition. I love competition in its pure form. I love that it brings out the best. I love when Draymond Green blocks a shot and knocks down Luca and but then immediately picks him up like I love that I love the excellence that competition breeds I love that it drives us to become our best those are great and phenomenal things too often now though our competition is marred by accusations of cheating um, by accusations of injustice and unfairness not that there aren't those things sometimes but that's always the explanation, or it seems to be always the explanation for losing. And winning becomes the end in itself rather than engaging in the learning process. Um, anyway, and obviously we need to apply this to life cooperation. We're not too good at it. We've uh, divided ourselves into camps and we continue to harden our, our barriers the fourth one is metacognition, and that's just kind of the idea of thinking about thinking, you know, and in, in terms of classroom, I just want the students to be able to reflect once they finish their creative process, once they fit, you know, once they finish their display of what they've learned, I want them to think about how they went about it. What was their process? What were the strengths? You know, what were the roadblocks? And if there are grades at all, which I don't know how I will handle no, putting numerical values on all this stuff, still working through that. But if there are, then this will get a big chunk. This reflective process should be a huge part in learning. 
the positives and the roadblocks. And I don't like to call them negatives because the roadblocks have value. We can learn from where we didn't succeed. You know, we, we can we can get better. Isn't that the way? And by valuing our so-called error or our shortfalls, then then we can adapt our thinking and allow ourselves to be more willing to not only be critical in the true sense, but we can improve our flexibility. We can improve our willingness to change, our willingness to see through different eyes, to gain perspective. Oh, wow. Already 24 minutes in as we make our way to halftime. So I'll have to keep this one short. But I'll give us a little bit. This uh, part of the of the podcast popped up out of a, just a creative process. And I think I'll include it in the in the classroom, but because we've gone so long, I don't want to um, spend too much time. So I'm going to cut out two of the stories. One of them is about a hike in Grand Tetons and one was about all the zits on my face in middle school because of uh, diving on the floor in the middle school gym. I'll have to share those next time. I know you can't wait, but uh, I've heard this one before. I want to ask, what are, what are the best bathroom signs that you've ever that you've ever seen. I can really only think of two. So I'm asking for you to tell me that the classic one, maybe down South is, you know, if you sprinkle, when you tinkle, be a sweetie and wipe the seedy. The one that my parents had hanging up, um, and is on the latest story of my, uh, uh, Instagram DT underscore madness says, we aim to please you aim to please. And I like that one. That's a good solid one. Still have those. In my house, classic seventies. What you got? What's uh, what's the best bathroom sign to tell people not to pee all over the place? All right, so I know that was kind of weird, but um, I'm kind of weird. So those are the four: um, agency, creativity, cooperation metacognition. And now I want to talk about evaluation and I don't know why I waited 26 minutes to get into this. This is really the the main thing I wanted to say. Maybe the biggest, certainly at the top of the list, need for reconsideration and revising and, and revision is our system of evaluation and assessment. Accountability is a real thing. No doubt. Accountability both in life, in the classroom. It's, uh, it's something that is necessary. But what are we doing to our kids, man? And for what? For one, our our system right now, it's not even effective. All we're asking the kids to do is digest information and then regurgitate it back up on a test. And then for whatever reason, however we decide to massage those numbers or, or create that curve, like somehow kids are successful or aren't. It's ridiculous. And this is systemic, you know, for the most part, teachers are doing their best to avoid this kind of stuff. They're, they're trying to avoid this undue pressure that falls to the kids, but the incentives are built in. You know, uh, it's built in from the top. 
And so we've got to come up with a different way. We really do. Like coming out of the pandemic, seeing all this kind of stuff, now is the time. We see we see where our system has been exposed. Now is the time for reform. So let's let's don't get distracted by these petty, oh man, these petty made up political issues. And let's really deal with reforming education. Okay. And don't don't misunderstand. Please don't conclude that you know, all the kids get a trophy, whatever. I don't conclude that I'm saying that kids are soft or weak because they deal with this test pressure, because they deal with this test anxiety. Well, back in my day, we that's nonsense. Back in my day, we didn't have all this stuff. Today, literacy is different. It's not reading, writing, and arithmetic. That's not where we are. Memorization's fine. It's fine. You, you need to memorize information in order to build. That, I understand that's a part of the pyramid, whatever. But we don't just need the information anymore. We can find it. I could look it up right now while I'm doing this podcast. I could ask so many different ways. We don't need the information to memorize. We need to be able to synthesize it, to analyze it, to practice with it, to communicate. Communication is different. The way that we do things is just not reflective of our current needs in industry or humanity. It's, it's a facade. It's a mirage. And the costs of perpetuating the system are, are enormous. Look, first, maybe wording is the problem, the word test. I try to always use the word assessment because I don't really emphasize grades at all. Because what we're doing is trying to find out where weaknesses are. And that's as important for the instructor as it is for the student. I need to see what's working. I need to see if it's working for this group of students, if it's working in this particular you know, subject area or this particular unit. I need to know that I need to have an assessment so that then we can reappraise and fix, you know, any potholes that we have. But instead we, we focus on tests as if that's where the value of the whole course rests. I, I tell this to my AP classes. Look, I want them to get their, I want them to get their college credit, and I will say that the AP psych exam and the AP government exam are as fair as any examination that is currently given. They're good. College Board does a good job with those. But the value of what they get from taking an AP course isn't whether they get a 3, 4, or 5. It isn't just that. The, the majority of the value comes from the way that we learn and teach in the class. That should be the way it is with all the classes. But when the value is placed solely on a grade and when schools are measured and bonuses are granted based on these metrics, then that misplaced value and, and misplaced pressure yields levels of anxiety that are shameful for us as a society. We should do better by our kids. Because it's not fear of failure that fuels this anxiety. I've talked to so many kids over the past few weeks about this issue. We, we dealt with it in my own house. And so because of that, I bring it up in class and I talk about this, trying to understand, you know, how widespread, and it is. It's so widespread. When these kids finally let their guards down and realize how many others this affects, they're willing to discuss it with me. And it's elementary kids, it's middle school, it's high school. I had high school kids telling me about throwing up before their AP exams. That's the type of fear and pressure and anxiety that they feel because of the way that we've systemically, systematically placed that on them since they were young. 
One kid I heard threw up at school at the middle school. Turns out I, I think he had COVID or some stomach virus, can't remember, but 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 they called the parent and said if he throws up again, then we'll send him home. Because the first time he threw up, they just figured it was from test anxiety. Because that's how freaking normal this has become. Oh man. It's not the fear of failure. It's the fear of being labeled a failure. That's what these kids are dealing with. Of disappointing others. Of disappointing themselves. How have we come to this? I'm staring at the stars here. I don't know the full answers of how we've gotten to this point, but oh, but I hope we can find the will to change it. And don't get me wrong. I know this bleeds into living. As I've thought about this this week and my fear, as I mentioned last week, of going to the doctor, it isn't so much that by going to the doctor, they might find out that I'll have something. I understand my mortality. I do. I'm not glad about it always, but I get it. There's a notion for me, though, that if I have a thing, then it shows weakness. Even though in many ways I have no control over the deterioration of my body. I mean, that's just part of getting older. It's part of being human. It's that label, though, the stigma that I think fuels a lot of my fear. My God, where is my mind? How did we get to this point? But back to the students in particular. What are these expectations, both real and imagined? Oh, and how can we do better to lighten the burden for them, for our kids, and allow them to really learn, to truly be creative and productive, to be more fully human and not just automatons who are mind-numbed by this system and then put to work? Let them be. Persig says the, the ultimate test is always your own serenity. Let's do better to create peace and balance for our kids. The final thing here is my role. How do I see my role? And, and, and in talking about evaluation, look, I'm an adult. I'm 44 years old. Evaluate me, please. As a teacher, I would love for the administrators to evaluate me. It keeps me sharp. They know what quality is when they see it. My results will speak for themselves. And you know what? Let's begin the move towards having teachers who are willing to create these spaces for kids to truly learn and create and encouraging the teachers who aren't cut out for that to pursue other careers. Yeah, I said it. I, I'm, I see my role as a shepherd in a sense, and it's not the best analogy because I, I don't think of the students as sheep. In fact, quite the contrary, but but the shepherding kind of notion, you know, some students will need to be guided towards agency, which again, sounds like a contradiction in terms, but some of them don't know how to, uh, I don't know if it's don't know how to, if they're not willing to, whatever, it's a tough task for them to get towards feeling like they have control, to get towards feeling like they have a stake, that they have a say so in it all. In all likelihood, this is this is due to the fact that we've hammered that creative, inquisitive spark out of the kids from early on. And the ones who don't perform well on tests based on, you know, linguistic and mathematical intelligence and nothing else, those kids that don't perform well on those tests early on, they developed a sense of learned helplessness, a sense of, re- of resignation. And so a shepherd guiding these kids towards some sense of agency and creativity, but only in a sense, because once that 
begins, once that agency and creativity begins to foment, then uh, to, to develop, uh, is foment the right word? Anyway, to develop, then I have to be willing to relent, to step back. That's the role for me. To nudge them, to create, to facilitate, to settle into the role of facilitating the space, the conditions for this type of real learning to bloom. Persig's talking about his kid who's really struggling climbing the mountain. And of course the mountain is, is thought and learning and life and all that in terms of metaphor in the book. But Chris has fallen down, the kid has fallen down and he's really struggling. And, and, and Persig says, I know eventually, I know eventually he'll get up and keep going, but he doesn't know this and is afraid to face the possibility that this fear creates, that he may not be able to climb the mountain at all. And so in another sense, I'm a Sherpa, you know, I'm, I'm just a guide to help you take these steps up the mountain to let you know that you can to equip. Part of my role is to have high expectations, no doubt about it. Accountability is real. Having high expectations is a real thing, but those expectations shouldn't be rigid and bound by arbitrary standards. I should be the trained professional in collaboration with other trained professionals who are pursuing this end. And I should model these expectations by, con by continuing to pursue my own creativity and learning, teaching and learning. That's what I always write in the kids yearbooks. So glad to have gotten to teach and learn with you this year because I'm always learning too. I learn as much from them as they do from me. Always. There's no end to that. Lifelong. Persig's talking about the ego climber and how that always ends in disaster and, and, and what he says when he's, he's spent some time in India in the Himalayas. And so he says, you know, the folks who climb the mountain and are able to climb the mountain well, take each step as sacred. And that comes from the mountain. The value is in being human and learning helps us to become more fully human because we're able to see through the eyes of others. If even just for an instant, it helps us to gain perspective. It helps us to be considerate, to be Christ-like. It's not the climber. It's not up to the climber. It's our shared humanity, the good, the true, the beautiful. One moment it is, you know, one moment is, is eternity. I think that's real. But at the same time, one of the things that I struggle with is I worry about not being there for my kids, my own kids, my students. Um, but I worry about being that not, not being there for them. You hear me good? Um, we've talked about this. And, and, and so a lot of my anxiety, or oftentimes my anxiety, comes from a moment that doesn't seem to fit the mold. My kid has trouble doing something. My kid is feeling ill or anxious or goes away that I didn't think that he or she should go. And it doesn't fit the mold. It doesn't fit my own fabricated pattern. And that's okay. 
that's okay. Because they can be creative. They can be their own individual self. They have agency. And it isn't up to me to control all of that. Everything's right. I believe that. So just hold tight. I'll end with a quote from maybe the the greatest philosopher in the history of the world. His name is Dave Wooderson. And he says, the older you do get, the more rules they're going to try to get you to follow. You just got to keep living. L-I-V-I-N. I hope you'll think about uh, some of these things this week and, and give me some ideas, both for the classroom and both for and for life, agency and creativity. Let's get in the game. Let's cooperate. Let's work together. Let's put aside this these partisan blinders and this whatever. A lot of the stupidity that we've allowed to mold us and shape us. And let's let's be trailblazers. Anyway, this episode is brought to you by the Church of Six, which one of these days I, you know, for any of y'all who are wanting to hang out, give me a holler. My deck's open. Come around, sit in the back. Brought to you by the Church of Six, brought to you by the Bucket of Life. I'll let you toss a pebble in. Brought to you by the Foundation Tower of stone it's brought to you by the magic rock which you'll get an explanation of sooner or later and our new sponsor this week brought to you by the wall of belief peace my friends